you open your Bibles to John 1, it will help you follow along so that you can, gives you the advantage of, of seeing if what the preacher is saying comports with Scripture. So if you have your Bible, open it up to, to John 1 if you haven't already. I want to begin uh, the sermon this morning with a question, which is a very simple question, but also a very profound question. The most, perhaps, important question there is, very simple question, and it's this, do you know God? What's your instant reaction? Of course I do. Now, but think about it. It's, it's more profound than that. Do you know God? Do you know Him? Now, in his book, uh, J.I. Packer writes about knowing God. And he makes some, some brilliant points in it. He says two things in particular. One can grow, know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. And also, one can know a great deal about godliness, that is, the practice of godliness, without much knowledge of God. Listen to the question then he poses. The question is not whether we are good at theology or, quote, balanced in our approach to problems of Christian living, or we could add the, uh, the number of Bible verses you have memorized or your, your Bible knowledge, the depth of your, your own Bible study practices, the, the consistency of your own prayer and personal Bible study. The question is, can we say simply, honestly, not because we feel that it, as evangelicals we ought to, but because it is a plain matter of fact that we have known God. And that because we have known God, the unpleasantness that we have had or the pleasant, pleasantness we have not had through being Christians does not matter to us. If we really knew God, this is what we would be saying. And if we are not saying it, this is a sign that we need to face ourselves more sharply with the difference between knowing God and mere knowing about Him. Do you know God? We have been going through the book of John particularly what's called the prologue or the introduction. So the first, we've been taking the first 18 verses, the introduction of John, and we've been saying about that, that what is in this prologue, this introduction, will be more fully developed in the rest of the book of John. He's telling us what the book is about. And the book is about the Word. It is about the Word who has come in fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. This one who is prophesied, this king who would come, this shepherd king who would come and gather his people together and save them and make them a faithful people, worshiping him. And as we come to the last five verses of this prologue, verses 14 to 18, I think we get to what, it, what we could say is a climax of this prologue, where the author just erupts in the supremacy of the word. What I want to put forward as the theme of the message, the theme of this passage is this. Jesus is the Word who has made God known. This is the climax. He has made God known. He has explained 
who God is. Therefore, if we wish to know God, we must pursue knowing Christ. Not merely about Him, knowing Christ as in a genuine, intimate relationship with Him. Do you know the difference between those two? Do you know the difference between knowing about God, knowing about Christ, and actually knowing Christ? It is the most importance of differences. So from this passage, I want us to, us to consider how Jesus makes, how Jesus, this word, makes God known. And I'll point to three ways in particular. Because Jesus has come and made God known, we can know God's presence, we can know God's glory, and we can know God's grace. Because Jesus has come, we can know God's presence. God, Jesus has made God his presence known. We see this in verse first part of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'll notice that the author returns back to this metaphor of the word. Right? We saw it in the very beginning in verse 1, and we haven't seen it since then. Well, it's not that the author has left this image. He's still speaking of the word throughout these 18 verses. Although he gives some other metaphors. He is the light, right? He's, he's spoken of these other things, and yet all along it's about the word. Well, he makes the connection explicit here in verse 14 because he wants us to see this stark contrast between the one who is and was and has been forever God with this one who has become flesh. This word who was in the beginning, who was with God from all eternity, this word who was God and is God and always has been God, this word became flesh. That should blow your minds. We should just sit here the rest of the time and not do anything because that is unbelievable. The word became flesh. And when we say the word became flesh, we don't mean that he put on a suit of flesh, a human suit. Right, Halloween's coming up. Some of you will maybe dress up for Halloween. I almost have never dressed up for Halloween, but I saw a costume that I would wear if y'all pitched in and, and bought it for me. It is a it's, a, it's like a suit. You put it on and nobody knows who's in there because it's a full suit. It's of a big baby. <laughs> it just looks hilarious. And I would wear that. <laughs> It's a suit. You, you can't see who's in there, but he's moving around. He's you know, doing crazy things, I assume. But Jesus did not put on this sort of human suit, which just kind of encapsulated or encased his divinity, right? If we, if we think that, we're getting his humanity wrong. He didn't merely take on flesh or have this container of humanity. He actually became flesh. He became human. So as the church fathers said he became that which he was not before he has always been fully divine he has always been he always been truly god but when he came to earth he became that which he was not he became truly human therefore he will always be truly god and another miracle that blows our minds he will always be truly human amazing 
This is, this is the person of Jesus Christ. Two natures, a fully divine nature and a fully human nature in one person. The Word became flesh, but He didn't only become flesh. He dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is speaking of His presence with us. Because of our sin and the fallenness of the world, something had to be done. And God came down Himself to take care of it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He made His life among us during his 30-some years, among humanity, among his creation. And yet, if we peer deeper into John's words here, the author's words, we see that he means more than simply he walked among us, he dwelt among us. He's actually hearkening back to a picture of God dwelling with, with his people in the Old Testament. If you look back at Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, we see this language. We see this language throughout. But in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, we read, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. We could also look, and we will, at Exodus 33 and 34, and we see this idea of the presence of God, particularly where? Where do we see the presence of God? We see the presence of God in the Old Testament, in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, and then, precursor to that, then we find He dwells in the temple. And so, the author here is saying, now Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the full deity of God. This is where God is making His presence known. See, all along, John has been pointing back to the Old Testament. Pointing back to the Old Testament. These things ultimately were pointing to someone, something else, this one who would come and fulfill the promises of God. He's pointing to the presence of God among men, and now he is saying, here is the presence of God. Any ancient Israelite, if you ask them, where would the presence of God be? It would pop in their minds immediately. Well, it's in the tabernacle. It's in the tent of meeting. This is where the smoke from heaven would come down, visible form, and meet. He would meet with Moses as a man met face to face. And all the the Israelite people would come to the entrance of their tents, and they would worship God because God was making his presence known. It's interesting how our culture today is often like that. We think about where is God's presence known? Where, where can we meet with God? And we think about something physical, about something visible. We think, what, what do you think? Where is the presence of God now? Did you grow up going to church in a sanctuary? I did. We called it that anyway. We, we would go into the sanctuary. You had to take off your hats you had to make sure you were wearing long pants most of the time. Why? Because you were in the sanctuary, right? The, this holy place. And I remember people calling it God's house. We're going to God's house. But what the author of John, what the author of John is saying is no. There's no, there's no physical location in which God dwells now. 
He doesn't come down into tabernacle. Rather, Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the very presence of God here on earth. And so if we wanted to know the the presence of God, if we want to know God in his being with us, we need to know Jesus. And you might think, well, we don't get to physically be with Jesus, so how do we get to experience that presence? Is your mind turning? Are you thinking about how do we know the presence of God since Jesus isn't physically here with us? Well, you might think that the disciples had it really good because they had Jesus right there beside them, the presence of Jesus beside them. But of course we know that Jesus, as we read on in John, will go to his death his sacrificial death for sinners. He will be raised from the dead. And then in the book of Acts, we read that he is then ascended into heaven. But in the book of John, he makes a promise, doesn't he? He promises that he will send the Holy Spirit. He promises he will send the helper to be with you and to guide you in all things. And so when Jesus was ascended into heaven, it says he poured out gifts to men and the greatest gift of all was his Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, not beside you in the person of Jesus, but inside you as one who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. The scripture says that each one of you believers individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has made his presence known in you and this is through Jesus who became flesh and dwelt among us. And not only are you individually temples of the Holy God, the scripture says he is making us into a temple. He is building us up into this temple in which he dwells. And that's why it's so wonderful and supernatural when we as God's people gather together as the people of God and hear the word proclaimed and sing his praises and we have a foretaste of of that presence of God, which we will experience in the full in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a foretaste, brothers and sisters, of the presence of God, which we'll experience forever. And it is found in Jesus Christ, and then as he pours his spirit out upon us. You want to know who God is in his presence, you look to Jesus Christ. But also notice in the next few verses, 14b and 15, that Jesus makes God's glory known as well. Not only makes his presence known, he makes his glory known. He says in that next part, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father. Full of grace and truth. John bears witness about this glory as well. Cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's pointing to this hidden glory of this one who has come, who was pre-existent and now is in human flesh. The author says, we have seen his glory. And we're already thinking about the Old Testament throughout this prologue. We're already thinking of this one who was in the beginning, who created all things. And now Moses kind of has moved on from Genesis and it seems to be in the book of Exodus. We have seen his glory. We think of Moses in Exodus 34. When he says, show me your glory. 
I want to see your glory. Amazing. The author of John says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only one, the unique one from the Father. They have recognized that he has been sent from the Father and his character full of grace and truth. In fact, turn back to Exodus 34. Let's look at 34 verses 5 through 9. Exodus 34, 5 through 9. This is after Moses had said, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God had said, you cannot see my glory because no one can see me and live. But I will let you see a part of it. I will let you see a a small taste of my glory. And there he says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses says, Show me your glory. And God shows him a part of it, and then declares his name and his character, that he is abounding in steadfast love, And faithfulness, these words are used over and over again throughout the Old Testament scriptures. His steadfast love and faithfulness. And it appears to me that John is doing the same thing with his words. He's pointing to the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and saying, this one, it is glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth corresponding to the Old Testament words, steadfast love and faithfulness, particularly speaking of his covenant faithfulness to his people. Speaking of his faithfulness. But again, you you think of the ancient Israels. If you ask them, how can you see the glory of God? Where is the glory of God? They would say, well, one, it's in this cloud which comes down and Whenever it goes up, then we move, and then it comes down again. This is the glory of God. They would say, the glory of God is the Lord descending upon the mountain and enveloping it in smoke and flame. Where is the glory of God? And again, our culture would find glory in all of the visible things which are so impressive and beautiful. I mean... Consider teenagers, kids, what do you find most impressive in this life? Is it the latest, greatest toy that you want for Christmas? Is it the latest iPhone model that you really would love to have? Adults, is it that fancy car that you wish you could have? What is it that impresses you? Is it the the star of the sports team who raises his hands to the crowd and tells them to cheer him on because he is that praiseworthy where do we see glory in this world 
Where do we see the glory of God? Where are you looking for glory in the here and now? Maybe you've seen and maybe you saw pictures, supposed pictures of Jesus growing up, right? They have certain paintings. He often is painted with long flowing hair and sometimes he looks somewhat feminine. Sometimes he has a halo over his head or his face is kind of shining. And you might think, well, that's the glory of God, as if he walked around the earth somehow, always just kind of brightly shining wherever he went. A a few years ago, I think it was Time magazine, came up with a different drawing. And it was basically, they, they didn't say this is what Jesus looked like. They said this is a basic Hebrew guy of the time. This is what he would look like, basic. This is what one of the ordinary guys would look like. And you look at it and you say, that's not very impressive. It's just a guy. (laughs) You know, that's not my picture of who I imagine Jesus to be. It's not very impressive. It doesn't seem like something very glorious. And yet, John here is saying, if you want to see the glory of God, that's where you look, in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, you look at this word, who has become flesh. And the author says, we have seen his glory. We have seen it. And so you you wonder, well, what, what is he speaking of then? How did they see the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, if you go down a little bit further in the book of John, we see this word again after the miracle at Cana when he turns water into wine. And the author tells us, and he manifested his glory. Now the amazing thing about that is not everybody saw that. Even though he manifested his glory in these signs, it took something else for people to see the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It took a miracle of God revealing it to them. How do you see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? It is through eyes of faith. And so again, we have an advantage over the disciples, even though they had him in the the physical presence, even though they saw his face, they, they saw his literal fleshly face, we have an advantage because we can see him through eyes of faith. And we saw last week how someone gets faith is through the new birth. It's not by the will of man. It's not by his own strength. It's by nothing in him. You can't force it. You can't do it yourself. It is the gift of God when a person is born again and trusts in Jesus and sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the scripture we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4. the, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the God who said, Let there be light has shown his light in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know where there is glory, where there's true glory, the glory of God, it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we can even see this going throughout the book. Remember, these are themes we will see throughout the rest of the book of John. As we work our way through John, we will come through through chapter 12 And one commentator has called this the book of signs. It's where Jesus is demonstrating that he has said who he says he is, the book of signs. And then at chapter 13, 12, 13, it turns and he calls it the book of glory. 
because Jesus speaks, starts speaking of the Father lifting up the Son and showing His glory. Well, what is He doing from chapters 13 on to the end of the book? He is headed toward the cross. And there is a great glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is perhaps where we see his greatest glory in this earth. This word become flesh who is laying down his life for sinners. Who is demonstrating his steadfast love and faithfulness, his grace and truth by becoming a curse for we who deserved a curse. This is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But we also see Jesus displaying God's grace. Jesus has come, and because he has come, we can know God. We can know his presence, we can know his glory, and we can know his grace as well. Verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness we have all received. Jesus here is the fount of every blessing. He is the one from whom all good things come. He is the giver of all good things. As he created in the beginning, so now he is the sustainer of life and the giver of all good gifts. Particularly, the author says, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The words there are difficult to translate. They're difficult to interpret. What does this mean, grace upon grace? If you have the NIV Bible, it has a a different translation. Even your version might have a note. And then at the bottom it says, it could also be translated this way. NIV says, grace in place of grace. Your translation says that, or grace instead of grace. What does this mean? Rather than a piling up of grace upon grace, some have suggested that this is one succeeding gift of grace after another as you've received grace and then it has gone you receive another bit of grace you receive another it never stops coming it keeps coming from this fount of every blessing like when you go body surfing in the ocean and if you get knocked down by a wave you better be ready why because another wave is coming right after it one succeeding wave wave after another one after another. They never stop coming. And as these waves crash upon the shore, so God's grace to us in Jesus Christ keeps on coming. Can you believe his grace to us? You you find yourselves being obedient and you get really excited because you want to live for God's glory and you you want to please him and then you have another failure and you get angry at someone and you sin and there's more grace for you. You, And then you, you make progress and you see the Holy Spirit working in you and then you fail again and then God pours out his grace to you in Jesus Christ again. How many waves of grace has God poured out on you throughout your life. There's another way of understanding this verse in the context, which I don't think is opposed to the way I just described it, but I think it is 
cooperation or correlation with it, look at the next verse. I think we should read these together. For, there's that linking verb, verb, linking word with the previous word, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the law was given through Moses. It was a, a gift from God. John is not he, here saying that the law was a bad thing. It is a gracious gift from God. What did God use the law to do? He showed them their own brokenness, their own sin, their own inability to keep the law. In place of that gracious gift, God has given a greater, superior gift in the grace of Jesus Christ. Think about the law and what it could not do for the Israelites. Moses was up on the mountain and God was speaking to him and he inscribed on tablets the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant. And Moses came down and what happened? The golden calf. He found the rest of, of Israel worshiping a golden calf, an idol, sexually immoral. Are you kidding me? I was just up on the mountain with God. <laughs> And you are doing this? What is going on? So he goes back up the mountain. And he, he brings down the law once again. Inscribed on tablets. Well, the first time, Moses really let them have it. Right? They had to grind that idol into bits and then put, put it in water and then they drank it. He punished them. This time, they'll get it right. He's really letting them have it this time. And now we've come back down with this covenant, with this law. He's renewing the covenant. This time they'll get it. The law was impotent to give them what they needed. It was powerless. It could not forgive their previous sins. And it could not provide for them anything that would help them get any better. It couldn't give them anything to start living according to to giving glory to God. But the grace of Jesus Christ succeeds in both of those ways. He has given us in his grace a provision for sin. He himself was the perfect Israelite. He himself kept the law perfectly. He did what Israel could not do in living for the glory of God every moment of every day. And by his sacrifice, by his perfect sacrifice, all of our sins are forgiven. He provides for our past sin and he gives us power to live for his glory now through the giving of his Holy Spirit. And this is a gift of grace. What the law was powerless to do, God has done in Jesus Christ for you who come to him in faith. We continue on in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. This is the climax. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Anything what I want to, to show you about this is that <clears throat> Jesus is being tr portrayed, as Lindsay said earlier, as superior. As superior to any type or shadow in the past, Jesus Christ is 
greater. And so you could go back, go back and read Exodus 33 and 34. And there seems to be this same pattern. It's almost as if John is looking back reading Exodus 33 and 34. And there's this same outline of the presence of God in the tabernacle. And then the glory of God coming down into the temple. And then the covenant of God with man. The old covenant was the Mosaic covenant, this covenant of law which was powerless, but the new covenant is the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. But consider how even now, how often we try to go back to works of the law as that which will give us favor with God. Do you find yourselves doing that? Thinking if you, could just, if you could just do better, if you could just do your Bible study more, if you could just pray more, then God would be more pleased with you. And there's no praiseworthiness in that. There's no praiseworthiness in, in really bucking up and trying your best to do so that God will be happy with you. That is, that is actually a rejection of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is a rejection of the grace of Christ when we seek to live by the works of the law. Well, Jesus, we have seen then, has made God known. He has made Him known. The Word made flesh has made God known. And as I said in Exodus 33 and 34, it's as if John is telling us Jesus is greater. He's greater than Moses and the ministry Moses had in the tabernacle, he went into the tabernacle and spoke with God face to face. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's greater than Moses in the glory that he saw. When he came down the mountain, the Israelites would see his glowing face as reflecting the glory of God. But Jesus himself doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is the origin of of the glory of God, proceeding forth to us. This is where we see the glory of God. And he has a better covenant than Moses. Moses had a covenant which was impotent to do what was required to bring a faithful people to God. And yet in Jesus we have this new covenant, which was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. And the amazing thing about that promise there in in Jeremiah 31 is that it it connects several themes we've already been talking about. A new covenant in which he will actually do something the old covenant couldn't do. He will write the law upon your heart so that you actually begin to live for God's glory. And he says, "No, no longer will each say to his neighbor, know God, because why? You will know God from the least to the greatest. How do you know God? It's when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and causes you to know Him. And then a little bit later in Jeremiah 31 as well, it connects this knowing God to the forgiveness we have in God. Knowing the forgiveness of God in this one who has come to save us from our sins. Well, brothers and sisters, I'll just close with the, the question and then the scripture again. But the question again is, do you know God then? 
Do you know God? How, how will you get to know God? How will you tell someone else about who God is, about what He's like? God has been made known in the person and work of Jesus Christ our Savior. As we close, I want to read through John 1, 1 through 18. Having preached through it in these three weeks that we've looked at it, having heard the Word of God proclaimed and explained, now maybe that gives us a a different understanding of what we've been so familiar with throughout our lives. And when we get to verse 14, I'll ask uh, Paul and those working on the the visual to, to put that up on the screen, and I want you to read that with me. So I'll read 1 through 13, and we'll read 14 to 18 together. Let's stand together as we do that.